You know, this is uh, very humbling. Um, when I, when I uh, arrived at the uh, Austin airport last night, and I walked past, I looked at that statue, bronze statue sitting in the airport, and I got closer, and I said, oh my God, that's Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan was a classmate of mine, and we both graduated in the 1959 uh, School uh, of Law from Boston University Law School. She was an extraordinary student, and of, of course, an extraordinary American. Uh, clearly, um, <laughs> you know, each day you wake up in the morning, and uh, you thank uh, the good Lord, in my case, is you have another day. And I am particularly thankful because I remember so well when I was somewhat shocked a few years ago when this uh, Clarence B. Jones uh, Impact Award was uh, named and then presented and so, for you to be here uh, to honor the recipient, but for you to be here to really honor yourselves, I just wanted to share a couple of things uh, with you. You know, the journey um, from um, 1960, February 1960, when I first met Martin Luther King Jr. and he was, uh, he was 31 and I was 29. And uh, for the next seven and a half years, I had this uh, never, never could have ever expected it. Don't have the time to tell you all of the details of how it happened, but for the next seven and a half years, I took this journey with this extraordinary person until at the age of 39, he was assassinated. And let there, lest there be some question for those of you who have your history a little muddled, Martin Luther King Jr., in my humble opinion, in the United States, one of the greatest living persons in the 20th century. In 12 years and four months, from 1956 until April 4th, 1968, the day he was assassinated, with the exception of the presidency of Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863, Martin Luther King Jr. may have done more to achieve political justice, access to equality and equal rights than any other person or single event in the previous 400 plus years history of the United States of America. In other words, he was a bad dude. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I'm so humbled that that award would be awarded in my name, but my humility is so diminished and overwhelmed as I have had the honor of meeting a prior recipient and uh, today's recipient whom I, we had a chance of meeting in uh, January in Sunnylands, California under a conference sponsored by the Annenberg Foundation where I brought together 
a group of the surviving so-called civil rights icons and uh, the newer generation of leaders coming on the horizon so that the survivors could reflect on what we did right and wrong and how we might pass on and quote some of the experiences and lessons for the generation coming up. And uh, your uh, recipient was there. And uh, the process by which he was chosen by the persons who uh, select the awards for the uh, Impact Awards, uh, I generally know, but I don't have all the particulars. But I do know <laughs> the gentleman whom you selected. I knew him before you selected him. I had nothing to do with recommending him, selecting him. And so it is, uh, you do well. You honor yourselves. Come that honors yourself, not by uh, the, the Impact Award and Clarence B. Jones, but you honor yourselves that you go through this process of each year selecting some distinguished person to reflect the values of Comnet and humbly what Comnet and some of you have come to believe the Comnet of Clarence B. Jones, but let's get it straight now so there's no confusion. This ain't about Clarence B. Jones. Clarence B. Jones is a legatee. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm a legatee. I'm a legatee, as I said, what did I say? The greatest living person in the United States in the 20th century. That's what you're doing when you bestow this award accidentally in my name. <laughs> but really, in essence and soul, in the name of all the values that this great American stood for and the values that Comnet has come to enshrine. So with those few words, I'd like to ask the judges, this great line, light is coming, to come to the stage. Uh, and come to the stage, uh, please. Uh, so you can uh, perform what you are required to do. Okay. Thank you. And but and let me and let, and let me let, let, hold on. Let me just say, you know, this is the first time I came to Comnet, and I had to have this, uh, you know, cane, so to speak, because I, you know, I'm aging. But don't, don't, don't get a mistake now. I'm still kicking, you know. <laughs> I can still boogie-woogie, you understand? <laughs> you understand? I'm ready any time, so thank you. Turn on that music, we might, you know. <laughs> we can test it out, Jones. We can test it out. So I just want to uh, introduce myself. Good evening. Good afternoon. My name is Melanie. Newman, I am the Senior Vice President for Communications and Culture at Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and I am pleased to be joined, thank you. Thank you. I'm pleased to be joined on stage with my fellow judging, judge, judges uh, for the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. Jason Hunky, director of an executive director of executive employment. Empl Pause. Jason Hunky, director of executive and employee communications at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Kristen Mack, interim director of communications at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Courtney Stewart, vice president of strategic communications at the Missouri Foundation for Health. Shaheen Sial, Director of Communications at the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation. Tyrone Walker, v Vice President for Communications and Public Affairs at the Greater New Orleans Foundation. And Ken Wine, Chief Communications Officer and Vice President of External Affairs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Let's give the judges a hand.
And on behalf of the judging panel and for all of you who participated in the process of selecting uh, this, the winner of the Clarence B. Jones uh, Impact Award, Desmond Mead runs the Florida Restoration Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, a grassroots membership organization run by returning citizens or formerly convicted persons who are dedicated to ending the disenfranchisement and discrimination against people with convictions and creating a more comprehensive and humane reentry system that will enhance successful reentry, reduce recidivism, and increase public safety. Their target audience for this campaign was Florida voters. Their goal was to restore voting rights to 1.5 million Florida residents without the right to vote because of a prior criminal record. And in a 2018 referendum, 65% of Florida's voters voted to restore voting rights to this population. Desmond Mead is a formerly homeless returning citizen who overcame many obstacles to eventually become president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy, and a graduate of Florida International University College of Law. As president of the FRRC, which is recognized for its work on felony disenfranchisement issues, Desmond has orchestrated the reorganization and incorporation of a coalition comprised of over 70 state and national organizations and individuals, which includes the NAACP, the ACLU, PICO, the Florida League of Women Voters, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, PICO Florida, the Florida Immigration Coalition, and many others. Desmond has also received many other accolades, celebrating his hard work and dedication to leadership and commitment to social justice. He led the FRRC to its historic victory in 2018 uh, with the successful passage of Amendment 4, which I've talked about. It represents the single largest expansion of voting rights in the United States in half a century. And yes. And it brought an end to 150 years of a Jim Crow era law in Florida. Desmond is presently leading efforts to empower and civically re-engage local communities across the state and to reshape local, state, and national criminal justice policies. It is my distinct pleasure and honor to present Desmond Mead with the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award for 2019. Black, whether they were 
white, whether they're progressive, whether they're conservative. We talked to everyone that would stop long enough to listen. When I was sentenced, the judge didn't ask me if I was Democrat or Republican. And as I traveled the state of Florida, I found that there were so many people that were impacted, no matter what their political persuasion was, and that that narrative that created an illusion that only Democrats cared about getting their rights restored, or only Democrats were the ones that would lose their rights, was a false narrative. And I understood that there was a system that needed to be unwritten. In August of 2005, I, was, I stood in front of railroad tracks, Dade County, Florida, on a hot and humid day. I was a broken man. And as I, as I stood there, in spite of the oppressive heat and humidity, I was actually able to block that out of my mind because the only thing that was going through my my head at the time was how much pain I was going to feel when I jumped in front of an oncoming train. That day I, that I stood there, I didn't have any hope. And I, and I, and I stood there and I waited and I, I waited and I waited. And, and, I, and I thought about how my mother did and my father, that they didn't raise me to be in that position, but there I was that day. I was homeless, I was addicted to drugs, I was recently released from prison, and I was unemployed, and the only thing I owned were the clothes on my back that day. And I stood there, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And I thought about the pain that I had to endure, whether that train was, was going to, as it cr crushed my body, was I was going to have to endure excruciating pain or was I going to die instantly? And I, even the thought of the pain wasn't enough for me to move. And I stood there and I waited. But for some reason that train didn't come. And I say, but by the grace of God. And I crossed those tracks and I walked two blocks further and I checked myself into drug treatment. And, and after completing a four-month program, I moved into the homeless shelter. And while there, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to do something because at the end of the day, I did not want to go back to using drugs. And I know in the past I was caught in this vicious cycle of using drugs and, 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 and getting to a low point in my life and, and stopping and then my life starts to improve and, and something would happen and I would relapse or I would pick up a drug or a drink and, and the next thing you know I'm right back where I started. And I knew that if I ended up at the railroad tracks again this time, maybe I wouldn't be so lucky. And so I needed to do something. And I figured, well, maybe if I can get an education, that would raise my self-esteem. And that's what I did. And I, I enrolled at Miami-Dade College, a local community college in, in South Florida. And I enrolled in the paralegal program, did extremely well, graduated at the top of my class. I was encouraged to continue my education, so I did. I, I pursued a bachelor's degree in, uh, in, in public safety management with a concentration in criminal justice because I believe my experience of getting arrested so many times and appearing before judges would somehow translate in the classroom success, and it did. <laughs> and I ended up graduating with highest honors and eventually I was accepted into FIU College of Law and in May of 2014, I graduated with a law degree. And I used to tell folks that, you know, in spite of the applause, that my story did not have a happy ending because I lived in the state of Florida, who had a over 150-year-old policy that denied me the right to vote, that denied me the right to serve on a jury, 
that denied me the right to even practice law. Because in Florida, I can't even apply to the Florida bar until my civil rights have been restored. So it was not a happy ending. To add insult to injury, my wife ran for office in 2016. And in spite of the fact that people all over the country, even prisoners in Puerto Rico, who were able to vote during the presidential primaries, I, because I lived in the state of Florida, could not even vote for my own wife. Right, something does have to change. But why am I telling this story? I'm telling this story because, number one, to really convey to everyone that at the end of the day, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. When you have a higher power on your side, and you are committed, you are committed to serving your community. Now, before I go any further, I need to make sure I, I, I really explain what that word commitment means because sometimes we confuse commitment with contribution. And so the best way to understand the difference is to think about a ham and cheese omelet. Because we know that in the ham and cheese and omelet, there are eggs, there's ham, there's cheese, and if you were poor like me growing up, maybe a little milk to stretch the eggs. And we know that the cheese and the milk comes from the cow. We know that the egg comes from the chicken, and we know that the ham comes from the pig. Well, the cow made a contribution to the ham and cheese omelet. The chicken made a contribution to the ham and cheese omelet. The pig, he made a commitment to the ham and cheese omelet. And that's part of why I feel so honored to even receive this award and, and be in the presence of the person who this award was named after because you're talking about a man that didn't make a contribution to our country, but made a commitment. The other part of this story really speaks to how we were able to accomplish this amazing feat. Because when you think about it, we were in the state of Florida, which is basically three states. We were talking about a controversial topic, such as voting, and we were talking about a controversial set of people, which folks call felons. And we were talking about this stuff in a climate, in a political climate, that spoke only of division and hate and fear, but yet we were able to bring these things together, these elements that was like trying to mix oil and water, but we were able to bring formerly convicted individuals voting in the state of Florida at a time like we were in, that we are still in, and not only did we win, but we won in fashion. And what does that mean? Over 5.1 million, let me say that again, over 5.1 million Floridians voted yes on Amendment 4. And what that number represented was a million more people voted for our amendment than any candidate that was on the ballot. What that means is that a million more people, a million people that voted for Amendment 4 also voted for our current governor, which showed a broad cross-section of support. You want to clap for that either? 
Because we have, we, we have to celebrate that even more. Even more, because we're at a time where our country is so divided that we've drawn hard lines in the sand and we have forgotten what it's like to connect with the humanity of another human being. We have put labels on ourselves and we have limited who we can talk to or who can talk to us. And that is what Amendment 4 broke down. We were able to transcend the partisan bickering. We were able to transcend the racial insecurities, anxieties, the implicit racial bias, and connect with other human beings along the lines of humanity. You see, when I'm driving down the expressway, you're driving down the expressway, and you, and, and you come across an accident, and there's someone on the ground, and you decide to stop your car, and you get out your car, and you run up to that individual, the first question you ask is not going to be, did you vote for Donald Trump? It's not. It's not going to be how much money you make, or what is your identity, or are you, do you have papers, or are you the right type of immigrant, or whatever. It's none of that. The first question is, are you okay? And how? How can I help? And so when you looked at those numbers in Amendment 4, what you seen was that we were able to slice through the hate the fear, the division, and bring human beings, bring people together, together. And those 5.1 million votes, they weren't based on hate. They weren't based on fear. Those were votes that was based on love, forgiveness, and redemption. And for a moment, and for a moment, this country, the world, the state of Florida actually got to see love winning the day. When you talk about this great accomplishment, it stood on the words of Dr. King, knowing that hate can't drive hate out. Fear can't drive fear out. Hate or fear can't drive darkness out. The only thing that can defeat it is love. Love. And that stood at the base of our communication strategy. <laughs> Bringing bringing a human element to such a politically and racially charged topic and shrouding that human element with love. And that allowed us to go in any part of the state of Florida. When we, when we did our testing and our polling and our research, focus groups, it didn't matter when we did our media scans and all of that other technical stuff that you all know about, <laughs> this is what we discovered, that we polled the supermajority in every major media market in the state of Florida. And that is unheard of. Because we know what polls well in North Florida is definitely not polling well in South Florida. And God knows how it's gonna end up in Central Florida because that goes back and forth every cycle. But we polled well in every, every cycle, continuously from day one. You know, and you know, when we talk about that the people who we thought was gonna be uh, opposed to this, when we looked around, they, they end up endorsing this. Could you imagine? That's crazy. And then I can, I, I can never forget the story of right before our, uh, the election, about a month and a half before, we did one final focus group and we brought in uh, white conservative uh, folks in the room and, and our, 
our comms team put together a couple of uh, advertisements. One saying that if you vote yes on Amendment 4, MS-13 is going to invade Florida and kill all the women and children. The other one said, hey, if you vote yes on Amendment 4, it will hurt President Trump and give those doggone liberal guys control of our state. Because if you remember, at that time, MS-13 was a hot topic, a very hot topic. And I was a little nervous about that video because it was very graphic and it was very, I can't think of the word. It was a very hate-filled video. And after we showed those videos, we polled that group. And we still polled that over 70%. I don't know if you all really understand what that means. I, I really don't, because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> but this is what I can tell you. For so many years, they've been struggling about how do we get people to stop voting against their own self-interest? Like, how do we communicate to maybe that poor white individual that lives in Appalachian Mountains that the same welfare that they're depending on, they should not be voting against? How do we get people who would tell you that they hate Obamacare but just love that Affordable Care Act. How do we get them to not vote against their own self-interest? And we've been struggling with that for quite some time. So what that focus group said is that somewhere in that mix, in that, in that formula, we have discovered how to get people to not vote against their own self-interest in spite of the fact that it might be politically inconvenient, in spite of their, their racial biases, in spite of their political preferences, that they would vote for what's right. And that's all we ever wanted people to do. And so in spite of the fact that we were able to play to people's primal responses, in spite of the fact that we were able to play to people's prejudices, they were able to sift through that, their own internal biases, and land in a spot where they said yes on Amendment 4. That was a great feat. And you know what got them there? Love. Love that when they seen Amendment 4, in spite of what a politician might have told them, in spite of what an opposition group might tell them, when they seen Amendment 4, what they seen was themselves as someone who they cared about. Whether it was a brother, a son, a daughter, a granddaughter, maybe somebody was caught up in the meth epidemic, and maybe somebody was was caught up with some DUIs or whatever, but they seen their own. They didn't see me. They didn't see me. And that's why I told my story at the beginning. Because in spite of the fact that I was right here in front of you as a large African-American man, when I told my story, it connected with you some kind of way to where you were not seeing me anymore. You may have been seeing a family member or a friend. You may have been seeing a loved one. You may have been seeing yourself. And that's what you connected with. Not the black man, but the story. And that story took you places. And if you notice, that only 1% of it was political. The other 99% was about humanity. It was about values. That's what drove us. That's what drove the strategy. That knowing in spite of where you stand, whether you think you're on the left or you're at the right, 
sometimes you're even scared to say it because we're in a world right now where if you say the wrong thing, you're demonized and ostracized. And so some of maybe what you're saying is just to appease the group that we feel we need to be a part of, that in spite of all that, we can cut through those fears and those anxieties and not let that drive our messaging. Because if that drive our messaging, it creates more of what we don't like. We talk about how divided this country is today. How we've just lost that touch. Well, I can tell you, if we really want it back, we should be committed to doing so along the lines of values that we hold dear to ourselves that would not be influenced by our political teachings and leanings, would not be influenced by our biases, but rather influenced by our heart. And the message that I leave you, that I think would help guide us in that direction, is back to love. But let me put a little twist to that. Because sometimes we do bastardize words and we abuse it and we give it different meanings and it loses its natural or its, its original state. So let me break down that word love to you real quick. It's wanting for your neighbor what you would want for yourself. That simple. How would you like to be treated? How would you like to be respected? How would you like to be dignified? And that's what we want for our neighbors. Whether they're here in your home, down in your street, in your hometown, in your state, in this country, in the world, it's all the same. That the way we would want others to treat us is how or what should guide how we treat others. I am so honored, I am so, so honored to be in your presence today and receive this award. And triply honored because of the name that's attached to it. And so I humbly accept this and I humbly thank you all. The selection committee, I'm glad that hey, Mr. Jones said he didn't influence you all, so that was a clean vote there. <laughs> and so <laughs> I am so appreciative of you uh, making that decision. Uh, and I tell you, um, I said I was gonna end, but I wanna end with this and then I wanna uh, give some time for some questions. You know, one of the, I guess, uh, recognitions that I received was, I don't know, in, earlier this year I was named uh, Time 100 Most Influential People in the World. And I remember having a conversation with some people from the time and I was like, why you have the rock on the cover? You need to put me on the cover, you know? <laughs> But this is why I told him that, I, I really, and, and, and that's, I, I think I want to end with this one. I promise I will end with this and then open up for questions. The reason why was because I needed people to see that we all can be a time 100, most influential person in the world. That if a person that was a crackhead just a few years ago, I was waiting on a train to come to end his life with no hope in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. If a person like that, in a matter of years, can become 
one of the 100. Now, there are billions of people in this world. There are over 100 countries in this world, but can become one of the 100 most influential people in the world, then that tells me that anybody here can be great. Each and every one of you can be great. That no matter what your station in life is, no matter what you make, no matter the color of your skin, no matter the status, no matter your sexual identity, no matter any of that, that each and every one of you in this audience today have the opportunity to be a time 100. Because you have the opportunity to serve. Serve. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. And so I think we have a few minutes for a couple of questions. I know that there are some folks with some mics. Um, if you have a question, um, <laughs> I typically tell folks that no question is too tough. Um, ask away, and I will do my best to answer it. <clears throat> Megan? Um, my question is, uh, you had said that this was a cycle for you, um, you know, drugs and um, hitting rock bottom and rising up and then going down again. What made the difference at that one point that you were able to get out of the cycle and move toward a more <laughs> positive? Great question. Great question. I'm going to try to uh, make this uh, answer as short as I possibly can, but it's not a short answer. Um, so when I, when I crossed the tracks, or the story that I sometimes tell is immediately after I crossed the tracks, I actually turned around and looked back at the tracks and, and, and I asked myself a very uh, important question. And that question was, Desmond, if you were to have died, how many people would come to your funeral? And the answer, immediate answer was zero. You know, I'm, I'm drug addict on the streets, homeless, I'm not hanging around family or friends. I didn't have any identification. The train would have killed me. I would have been buried in a pauper's grave somewhere in South Florida. And I didn't like that. That felt empty. And so I, I changed the fact pattern, and I said, okay, Desmond, you're killed by the train, and your picture's on the front page of the Miami Herald, top of the fold, right? <laughs> Desmond killed by train. How many people would come to your funeral? And I thought long and hard and only came up with four people. Four people, and out of the four, maybe two would have shed a tear. And that thought hit me in the gut like a Mike Tyson blow. And I started to question myself, and I was like, wait a minute, Desmond, you mean to tell me after all these years of, uh, of living on this earth and having different relationships and, and friendships and living in different parts of the country and being in the military and traveling the world, only four people would care if you died? Have your life been that insignificant? And that bothered me, and I took that in to drug treatment, and it so happened in 2005, something happened around that time. Rosa Parks passed away. And I remember I was sitting in the treatment facility, and I was watching as her body laid in state and returned to the Capitol, and I was seeing people filed by her body paying the last respects, and some of the folks had tears in their eyes, and something hit me, and I don't know what happened? But I jumped up out of my seat and I started pointing at the TV. I was like, that's it! That's it! And I, my mind started racing and I was like screaming at the TV and like, that's what I want! And I started planning my own funeral. I wanted, you know, to have, and I'm, my mind is scrambling and I'm like, okay, where am I going to have it? I landed at Joe Robbie Stadium where the Dolphins play, right? So I'm going to have it in the stadium. It's going to be standing room only. People are going to be even on the field. Not a dry eye in the house. I'm planning this. And I tell you, I, I, I got the venue down packed, 
But then I ask myself, what type of person could command that type of audience at their funeral? And I came up with two types. I said, okay, that would be, have to be an athlete or a movie star. Now, I played a little football, but my knees were bad. Even the Dolphins could have probably still used me. They could probably use me now. They're not looking too good this year. But I was like, okay, I ruled that out quickly. And then I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to make a confession. My wife tells me I'm a handsome guy, right? And I, I tend to believe her. But see, let me tell you, when I thought about movie star, the first thing that pops in my head is Denzel Washington. And I was like, well, I know I'm not a bad looking guy, but I don't think I'm Denzel Washington type of handsome. Now, I'll tell you, thank God I didn't think of Forrest Whitaker at the time, because I know I have him beat, right? I, could, I got him beat hands down. And I probably can beat Wesley Snipes, too, as long as I don't take off my shirt, because he got a good six-pack going for him. But at the time, all I thought about was Denzel. And I was like, man, I can't, I can't beat Denzel Washington type of handsome, so I got depressed again, but only briefly, because my mind went back to Rosa Parks, that she did something that we felt the impact of even up to the day. And so I immediately thought that when they made him in the desert, maybe if you could take that pain and that suffering and that low self-esteem and that anguish and all those things that drove you to the railroad tracks, if you can take it and package it in such a way to where you can use it to help other people so they don't have to go to railroad tracks, maybe you might be going somewhere. And they helped somebody, you know that old Perk commercial? They tell two friends and so on and so on and so on. And I knew that Joe Robbie held a lot of people. So I had to get to work. And what happened was, was that while I was still in treatment, a young man after a session told me that it was something that I told him that caused him to experience a paradigm shift. That caused him to start thinking about life more differently. And when he told me that, something erupted inside of me that I didn't even knew existed. Today I can tell you that it was a joy that erupted in me, right, that I was searching for all of my life and didn't even know I was searching for it. That what happened, what I experienced at that time was coming to realization of what my purpose was in life. To understand that when I look at nature and all of the things that God created, that they took a little and they gave a little. That, that my purpose in life was to give back, was to serve. That I understood that no matter where I was in life, no matter what, what, what position I had, a title I had, or how much money I had, that there was always gonna be someone that was worse off than me. And so I always had something to offer, something to give back. That was that moment that took me on this journey because I realized I didn't need the big funeral. As long as all of, I could impact one life, that all that pain and that suffering all of those things that led me to the railroad tracks, all of those things that caused me to walk around as a homeless person for over nine years with my head down with shame, all of those things became worthwhile because it impacted one life. And man, with this 1.4 million now, you could tell I'm getting the icing on the cake too. So I hope that answered your question. <laughs> Desmond, I'm Elise. Thank you so much. You're such a blessing and sharing your passion with us is awesome. My question is, in this beloved state of Florida, if you had a magic wand and you could make one thing happen, what would it be? Hmm. That is great. That's a great question. 
if I could make one thing happen with the touch of a magic wand, it would be to give folks courage to look within themselves for the answers. I do believe that even as a movement, that we get so caught up in what the other folks are doing or the opposition is doing that we don't even realize that our biggest oppositions are ourselves. In Amendment 4, I can tell you that 95% of the opposition that we experienced did not come from conservatives, did not come from Republicans, did not come from dark shadow groups. 95% of the heartache and the stress and the pushback came from people who were supposed to be allies. When you have, I mean, I could get into it, but that is, <laughs> that is what I would, if I could just change one thing, is that for us to really understand that the hardest thing about changing is self-reflection. To be able to be honest with ourselves and understand that life is 1% or 10% what people do to you and 90% of how we react. And so we can change so much in this country. We could change so much in this state if we first start with looking at ourselves. Because a lot of times, especially as a person of color, I can tell you, that the oppression that we seek to fight back against is the same oppression that we actually perpetuate on each other. And that's being real. Did I answer your question? Thank you. So no more questions? I can, I can leave now and enjoy my work? Okay, this one. Hang out with Mr. Jones because he's ready to dance because he's saying that don't let the cane fool you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story. I'm Jennifer. My question is a very pragmatic one. How did you get started? Because you went, some, there was a, a transition, a process between you deciding that you wanted to help and stop planning your funeral to organizing this great campaign that helped a lot of people. That's a great question. And there's a lot of communicators in this room, a lot of people who uh, oversee communicating departments and different agencies and foundations, whatever. That's an amazing question. Because what it speaks to is how do we connect to the people that are closest to the pain and allow them the space right, to be engaged in developing the strategies that are needed to liberate them. Because see, I'm going to tell you something. You know, I was telling a story, well, I'm not even going to go there. What I can say is this, is that the person who is experiencing the pain is more invested in ending it and ending it as soon as possible. Are you with me on that? And so there was a time in 2011 when uh, the previous governor, Rick Scott, when he came into office and the first thing he did was undo policies of the previous governor, which was Charlie Chris, during which the four years, 100, over 155,000 people were able to get their civil rights restored. Rick Scott comes in and in the first meeting, he undoes it. And in eight years, less than 5,000 people were able to get their rights restored. But when he undid those policies, and when he made it harder, everybody else took their lunch pail and went home. And they could do that. The orgs can do that. The peop other people could do that because they could wake up in the, the next morning and vote. But I couldn't. My family still suffered because of collateral consequences associated with a felony conviction. So I didn't have an option to go home. I had to stay there. And I figured if I was going to stay there, I was going to fight. So yes, there was a time 
when there was no money, that I ran the campaign out of the trunk of my car or in the, in the living room of my mother-in-law's house, and I would put 50,000 plus miles on my car each year. There was no help. There were some volunteers that stood up and said, in spite of the fact that my organization that I'm affiliated with don't want to waste time with this because there's no money and there's no pathway to success and all that stuff, I'm going to come because I have a loved one who's impacted. Or I'm going to come because at the end of the day, I remember when they talked about, was there any polling or, or research done during the civil rights movement? And what guided the decision to fight, to stand up? And it wasn't about no research. It wasn't about polling. It was about the people experiencing the pain said, enough that this was the right thing to do, that we're standing on, on righteousness. We're standing on truth. And so there was no bitterness or even uh, uh, anger at, the, well, at the beginning it was, at people that ran away. But now today I thank them because they allowed me, by doing that, they allowed the people that was closest to the pain to make sure that they were firmly entrenched so when they did come back around that they understood that there was only one shot caller that there was only one leadership in this movement. And it was the voice of people who had nothing to lose but everything to gain. And when we as communicators are able to connect with people that are closest to the pain, there is, there is a level of authenticity that you cannot duplicate any other way. And that level of, of authenticity has the ability to slice through the fog and slice through the opposition and land exactly where it needs to land, and that's right here. That's right here. And we even see that in marriage equality fights, right? It's landing right here. Because when you touch a person here, you can overcome anything. I hope I answered your question. Okay. And I, uh, I have the mic, and you have been so amazing. I'm not going to ask you about strategy and all of that. I'm Sylvia from Chicago, and I thank you. I know I do it on behalf of all of us. And you make me think of one statement that guides me. Uh, it was a, a mystic, Cahill Gibran, who said, Work is love made visible, and that's exactly what you are. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think they let you keep the mic on that one, didn't they? Uh. <laughs> that was some deep. Hey, that was, as my kids would say, that was deep. That was very deep, and I appreciate you, sister. I really do. And I, I do believe that, though. I, I really do. At the end of the day, I used to tell folks that if love is not the guiding force behind what you're doing, then you may need to rethink what you're doing. Desmond, hi. Uh, my name is Edith. And I wanted to know, did your wife win her election? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that, the most important thing that she won was my heart. I tell you that. <laughs> and she won that the moment, the moment I seen it. But no, she did not win. Um, but I'm telling you, she, she, she got in the race late, she ran against an incumbent, and was still able to get around 40% of the vote, you know? And I, and we have this, uh, you know, internal dispute, you know, maybe you guys can appreciate it, um, because she had, her slogan was run with Sheena, right? And I told her, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong or right, I told her, that the best slogan that she can get was, we need mead, <laughs> right? You want better schools? We need mead. You want safer communities? We need That's right. You want livable wages? Mead. That's right. I need, you need, we need mead. <laughs> so maybe you all can 
sent her an email and said, next time, listen to your husband. <laughs> Did I answer your question? <laughs> okay. Okay, <laughs> Brother Mead, um, what can this room of very uh, influential folk do to help you in the fight against the interposition and nullification that's taking place at the governor's level uh, in response to your success? Those are the words from I Have a Dream, right? Wasn't it interposition and nullification? That was the governor of Alabama, right? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is, uh, is not necessarily promote that narrative of opposition or obstruction, all right? Because it's not as much obstruction as the media is making it out to be. That's number one. But I think what's most important, and what our slogan was, right, when after the governor signed the bill, it was very simple. Where others see obstacles, we see opportunities. And I think that in any situation that we find ourselves in, we could either feed on the negative, and all that does is just expound or, 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 or exasperate the fears or the uncertainties that already exist in our communities, or we could find a positive spin in this and use it as a way to, to, to galvanize folks right, to, to be keenly focused on some action. Because I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you why. Florida is a state, right, we, 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 we passed amendment for over 1.4 million people were able to get the rights restored, okay, voting rights. And then we know this thing with fines and fees. But this is what we also know. We know that out of the 1.4 million, 840,000 people 840,000 people are not even impacted by fines and fees. Now, why is that important? Well, that's important because you're talking about 840,000 potential new voters in a state where the gubernatorial race was decided by how much? 30,000 votes. That a congressional race was decided by how much? 16,000. That presidential races are typically decided by 100,000 or less. So, we have 840,000 people who can register that are not impacted by fines and fees. I say we cover the gap already. You with me? That's number one. Number two is, well, let's talk about that 560 that do have fines and fees. What we do know is that that legislation actually now allows the courts to modify their sentence to remove that barrier so they can register to vote. We know that. And so what we need to do is find these 560,000 people and let's get them through the court systems. And if not, we started a, crowd, uh, a crowdsource funding apparatus to help those pay off their fines and fees. So we have the ability to actually get at least, at least 96% of the 1.4 million people registered to vote. We have that, of course, that's a lot of people to register in a year's time, but we have that opportunity. And so the, the, my thinking is, is do I get people to be focusing on the governor or Republicans or whatever there is out there? Or do I realize that we have almost a year before we're facing the most critical presidential election that I've seen in my lifetime and probably in yours, and that we need to get people registered, engaged, and turned out? So my message is not about woe is me. My message is about we are presented with the, one of the greatest organizing opportunities in the state of Florida that can not only transform Florida, but this country and the world. That we know, I have never in my lifetime seen anyone in the White House that did not win the state of Florida. I've never seen it, not in my lifetime. So I know that we have an opportunity to impact who gets in that White House, 
to impact people's lives, not only in the United States, but in every other country on this planet. My job is to get about that business and not talk about woe is me. And I hope I didn't sound too preachy, but when you talked, you reminded me of a Baptist uh, preacher, so <laughs> I kind of caught that vibe there. <laughs> I think I have time for half a question, and then I have to go. One more, any more questions? There is one over there. Oh, one over there, okay. Hello. <laughs> oh, sorry. My name is Dana Bakich, and I currently live in Los Angeles, but I'm from Sarasota, Florida. And <laughs> I kept up my absentee ballot for as long as humanly possible, because I was in New York first, and then California, and so obviously it's very important to be a voter in Florida. Um, my question is, when you were going throughout the state, did you have, because it's so diverse within mm -hmm. the state, right? How did you, or did you change your messaging as you went through the state, or was it Great all question, great question. Same messaging, same messaging. When I started, the first petition that came off the press, I went straight to a conservative county. Uh, it was during election in 2014, and I went to people that wore like Rick Scott t-shirts. And I, that's where I started registering, um, having people sign petitions. As a matter of fact, we, when uh, there's two stages to a ballot in this, the first stage is you have to collect enough petitions to qualify to have the Florida Supreme Court review the language, and once they approve it, then the second stage is actually collecting enough to actually get it on the ballot. So that section, that stage to qualify, where we had to uh, collect certain amount of petitions in at least seven congressional districts, the first two congressional districts, actually the first congressional district that was that we qualified was a conservative district. Y'all hear me on that? It was a conservative district. The third was a conservative district. And the message didn't change. And I'm going to tell you, in all of the time that I was going out there, talking to people where they're at, it was about, do you know somebody who ever made a mistake? You know? That's it. Do you know someone who's made a mistake? And that took the, 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 the um, attention off of me and put it on someone that they cared about. And then once they said that, then we were able to talk. Only two cases where that backfired on me. <laughs> One, I was in uh, a bar, a very conservative bar. It was a biker bar. And I ran into a Latino clergy member. Like, what is he doing in here? But he was a pastor. Uh, maybe he was ministering with it, I don't know. But he absolutely not, as a pastor said, no, he's not for Amendment 4. And that was kind of weird. But the other one was I ran into this conservative guy at the Jacksonville Jaguar game. And I remember I started with my favorite line. Do you know someone who's ever made a mistake? And he said, yeah, my son. And I was like in the back of my head, I got another one bites the dust. I got him. I said, well, wouldn't you... When your son serves his time, wouldn't you want him to vote again? And the guy said, hell no, he's too stupid. <laughs> I shook his hand and thanked him for his time. Thank you all. 